0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh Metropolitan Area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. This is the Gospel John chapter 2, Gospel of John chapter 2. We're going to begin reading with verse 12 and read through verse 17. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture and certainly what it reveals about our precious savior, about his person. Reveals much about his zeal uh, for your glory. Oh, Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Teach us and train us in righteousness, that we may be equipped in every way. Oh, Father, we pray that you would raise our hearts to understand this passage, to see what the intention of the Holy Spirit was as as he granted these words to the pen of John. And as these words you've preserved for us, for our hearing, for our equipping, for our edification, for raising us up. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by this entire exercise. Be our teacher, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Amen. Years ago, I discovered a phrase in the shorter catechism that. Uh, You guys know really, really well because I use it all the time over and over and over again. You might not realize it come from the shorter catechism, uh, but it's a phrase that comes from uh, question number 86. And question 86 asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Tremendous question, isn't it? What is faith in Jesus Christ? And it answers, a faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we... Receive and rest in him alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now you hear me say that all the time. As he is offered in the gospel. That's where I get that phrase. And um, it's an important question because the Jesus that we are receiving, we need to be sure that he is the Jesus of scripture. Does that make sense? Because we, we are so good at manufacturing gods with a little g. We are so good at manufacturing idols. It is very possible to be serving a Jesus who doesn't exist, who is nothing more than a pigment of our imagination. And that's why that phrase is so important, that we need, we must receive Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Now, our text this morning is going to challenge any conception of Jesus of being passive. <laughs> and we don't see him being passive in this text, do we? Uh, of, of accepting of all behavior. We don't find that. Uh, or being wrathless. Or being incapable of anger, or uh, withdrawing from confrontation. See, the Jesus that, that we need to receive is must be Jesus as he offers himself to us in the gospel, right? Does that make sense? No, here we find him making a whip and driving out oxen and merchandisers and declaring, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And we might ask ourselves, and and, you know, I I thought about doing this inductively and just going through and then reaching a conclusion, but I just want to announce the conclusion right from the get-go. What is causing Jesus to react so suddenly and energetically here in the temple? And the answer is zeal. We're told in verse 17 what the answer is. It's zeal. Zeal. Zeal for His Father's glory. And that's what I want to take up this morning is zeal. And what I'd like to do, I'd begin just as always just explaining the text. We, it's, a, it's a small text this morning in comparison to many of the texts we've taken recently. So we can look at it verse by verse this morning, and I'd like to do that, briefly explain the text. And then take a look at, take a look at this text from a couple of different angles Uh, which I think will be helpful for us, and from there make some application. So we start with verse 12. We start with this little phrase, after this. These are phrases that are easy to skip over, so I draw your attention to them. After this is kind of a connecting phrase. And John uses it a lot, actually. Yesterday uh, yesterday morning, actually, I just leafed through the the gospel, and, and I think I counted nine times where we find these words exactly like this, after this. You have it here in verse 12. If you look at chapter 3, verse 22, after this, Jesus' and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. You go to chapter 5, verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Chapter 6, verse 1, after this, Jesus went away to the other side. And interestingly, we have it again in, in verse 66 of that chapter. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And we could continue um, other references seven one eleven seven 1928 one where we're finding this phrase. This phrase is connecting narratives together, and it doesn't always express a duration of time. It doesn't always um, necessarily express a short period of time, but in some cases it does express a short period of time. And I think we come to one of those cases here this morning. Back to chapter 2, verse 12, that after this, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in John's gospel. Uh, What has Jesus been doing? Well, he's been in Cana. And what took place in Cana? Well, there was a wedding. That was the point in going to Cana. Uh, Cana is probably the place where Nathaniel is from. And uh, perhaps we could probably speculate and conjecture that uh, that is the reason um, that Jesus is there. Uh, perhaps it was a family member of Nathaniel who was having the wedding. It's conjecture. We don't know for sure. But there, Jesus famously transformed water into wine. And if you look back to verse 11, we're told that this was the first of his signs. And uh, two weeks ago, and that's, that's a long time in terms of remembering sermons. I mean, sometimes 12 hours is a long time in terms of remembering sermons. Um, But two weeks is a real long time. And you'll recall that two weeks ago, I mentioned a couple of things about the signs, that signs reveal, right? A sign reveals, biblical signs reveal things. Biblical signs also strengthen us in our faith. We see both of those going on in verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did it. Canaan, Galilee manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The disciples, as I pointed out, already believed in him. They were following him. But upon seeing this sign, their faith is strengthened, isn't it? Their faith is strengthened. And while we're on this subject, and I think I've already pointed this out, but if you keep your place in, in uh, John 2 and you turn to uh, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we're going to make... We're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to point these passages out a lot as we go along because they're really important. Whenever you're trying to understand a book, really, whether it be a biblical book or any book for that matter, it's really helpful to understand what the author's purpose is in writing the book. And in this case, we do not have to guess because John tells us what his purpose is. If you look at verse 30, John 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Now look at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There's the purpose. That's the purpose. It's the purpose of John writing. That's the purpose of the signs. So, Jesus is not simply performing this miracle in Cana to get the bridegroom out of the mess that he's in. He does get the bridegroom out of the mess he's in, but that's not the primary purpose the primary purpose is to reveal Jesus as the Christ the son of God and as i pointed out we get more detail even than that and one of the things that it's helpful for us to keep in mind when we're trying to interpret this particular passage is the fact that they're using these six stone water jars if you look in verse 6 six stone water jars i pointed that out it's really interesting uh, six stone water jars. We can read that and think, well, they just happened to be containers that were available, so that's what Jesus used, you know, because, they, you know, that's the containers that were... No, 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 I don't think so. There's significance to the fact of these six stone water jars that are used for purification. You remember, Jesus orders those water jars to be filled, right? And uh, how I've always understood the text... I've always understood it to go like this. Jesus fills the water jars. Then he transforms the water that are in the water jars into wine. And they dip out of the water jars and they distribute the wine uh, to the wedding. And that perhaps is indeed uh, what took place. But I offered an alternative uh, two weeks ago. And I think that I'm finding my own mind and my own heart leaning that way. That the word that is used, the Greek word that is used for drawing, generally means drawing from a well. So it is possible that they fill these stone jars up with water, and then as they continue to draw from the well, the water that they draw from the well is transformed into wine and distributed. Either way, either way, the the point the point doesn't suffer one way or the other. I think it actually is enhanced. With the second interpretation, a bit, now, because it's out of the well. It's out of this well. It's not even limited to uh, what we think would be possibly 120 gallons. No, it's coming from a well. I, I think there's. I think. I just think that. I. I think that's the position. That since reading that, I think that's the position I'm going to take. But here's the point. The point is, the old is given way to the new that the old, these, uh, these types, these shadows, if you will, are given way to the one whom these types and shadows have always pointed in the first place. In other words, he's here. Oh, he's here. The one that they've been waiting for, for all these years, the one who was promised way back in Genesis 3.15, Oh, he's here. He's here. He's arrived. We could put it another way, and I like to put it this way. Um, We could put it like this. The jars of purification will give way to he who purifies. The jars of purification are set aside for he who purifies. Now, after this, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum. We're told that he went with his mother and his brothers. Now, some of you will have a footnote at brothers. Uh, Oi, adelphoi is the Greek construction, and when that's used, it's plural, and it would encompass uh, sisters as well. So, it's quite possible, and some of you will have a footnote to that effect. It'll say something and sisters or brothers and sisters. Um, and passages like Mark chapter six tell us that Jesus had brothers, um, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and sisters as well, Uh, Mary and Joseph. uh, They they marry and they raise a family, and these would be half brothers and half sisters of Jesus. Now, we're told also accompanying them are His disciples, uh, who would be present at this point. Well, something interesting that I don't think I brought out, and I think I should bring it out while it's early is if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 35, uh, the next day again, John, that's John the Baptist, is standing with two of his disciples. Notice that, two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 40, we're told that one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Now, here's the question. Who was the other one? Who is the other disciple? Uh, presumably it's John. Uh, presumably it's John. Again, this is presuming, but I think it's it's John, uh, the writer, the author, the apostle John, uh, writer of the Gospel. So if that's correct, then John is with Andrew and Peter, and of course Philip and Nathaniel follow. So it's a really small group. And off they go to Capernaum and Capernaum becomes Jesus headquarters if you will while he's in Galilee and then from uh, Capernaum uh, we're told that they stay there for a few days and then from there the, the Passover the Jews is at hand verse 13 and Jesus goes and went Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now it's important that we point out now that this is the first of three Passovers that John will make reference to in his gospel. It's the first of three Passovers. Jesus is now just beginning, just embarking on his earthly ministry. So uh, the Passover feast, this is, this is the first. In John chapter 6, we'll encounter the second, which will be one year from now in terms of time frame. And then uh, in John chapter 11, we find Jesus at the third, uh, where Jesus actually will come to be uh, the Passover lamb of the Passover, and the Passover feast itself, and you know, even before I get to that, I'll tell you one thing, and maybe some of you can relate with this, um, if you're like me, and you've read the, the New Testament, especially if you've started in Matthew, how many have like said, you know, I'm going to read the New Testament, and you just start at the beginning, you start in Matthew, you read Matthew, then you read Mark, then you read Luke, then you read John, and away you go, if you've done that, then what's happened? Okay, you've read Matthew. And Jesus cleansed the temple when? At the end of his ministry, doesn't he? Actually, it's usually inserted right after the triumphal entry. Then you read Mark, same, same. You read Luke, same, same. Then you come to John, and here you find it at the beginning. Has anybody ever scratched their head over that? And you, you, you have to ask the question, I mean, how many times did Jesus cleanse the temple? Did he do it once? Is John simply kind of jumping ahead of time and recording this cleansing at the beginning, there's many people that take that position. Probably nowadays, a, a, a minority position would be that there are two cleansings. And that's the position that I take. There are two cleansings. I think there's a lot of problems with trying to make, trying to force this cleansing to be this, the exact same circumstances as the, um, the uh, uh, cleansing that's at, at the end um, and that—that's why I point out after this. I think this is happening in a short period of time, uh, and this is taking place while the first Passover is at hand. In other words, this is taking place early in Jesus' ministry. Now, some people re- will will they'll they'll uh, uh, reject that, and i I've, I've heard I've read where uh, one scholar said, "Listen, if Jesus cleansed the temple." at the beginning of his ministry. There's no way he would have been able to do it at the end of his ministry because the temple authorities would have been ready for him. And, I, I, you know, when I read things like that, I I just become so disappointed. I I have to ask myself this question. Just exactly who does this author think Jesus is? You, You think for like a New York minute that, (laughs) <laughs> they could stop him if he decided he wanted to clean, cleanse that temple. If he'd have done it three times, he could have done it each time. I would have no problem with there be three cleansings. Uh, he could stroll in there and do it any time he wants to do it. I, I take the position that he's doing it here at the beginning of his ministry. So uh, the Passover's is at hand. The Passover is probably the, uh, it's definitely the most uh Uh, important and significant of the feasts that are on the Jewish calendar. And, of course, it commemorates what? It commemorates the Jewish deliverance uh, out of Egypt. You remember the night on the tenth and final plague, uh, the Lord commanded his people to slaughter a lamb. The lamb had to be to certain specifications which the Lord gave. They took the blood of the lamb. They put it on the lentil and on the doorpost. And on the night that uh, the angel of destruction came, when he saw the blood on the lentil and the doorpost, he passed over the house. What a graphic illustration. What a wonderful illustration of salvation by faith through the substitute. Through the blood, the death of the substitute. Now, um, Jerusalem would swell up in its population during this time. Uh, the, uh, uh, the population of Jerusalem would triple. Uh, we don't really know. I don't think anyone really knows Uh, Any exact numbers, a lot of numbers have been conjectured. That's not important. What we do know is that the population swells up. So Jews are making their way into Jerusalem to uh, celebrate the Passover. Jesus is uh, doing the same. In verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And we might find out, well, this is odd. What is this all about? Well, uh, this was initially set up as a convenience if uh, you imagine, if we were traveling to Israel and uh, for the Passover, we would be required to bring sacrifices. It would be difficult to travel with oxen. Did anybody bring their oxen this morning? They say, No, well, we left him at home. Okay, well, had you, I mean, you'd have had to pull a trip. I mean, never mind. You can see how difficult that would be. Anybody bring any pigeons? We have any pigeons? Any doves? Sheep? I mean, you can see if you're traveling, especially if you're traveling on foot, the difficulty that would be. Uh, so initially, they set up on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and they set it up as a convenience where they would have suitable, approved, uh, uh, sacrificial animals there, and you could travel in, you could purchase the sacrifices that you need, and then you could make your way into the temple and offer those sacrifices as your, as your uh, spiritual worship. Uh, but at uh, some point in time, this operation gets moved into the temple courts. And, uh, without a doubt, it's in the court. What we call the court of the Gentiles. If you've ever looked at a little model of the of the temple, or you've ever seen, you can go online. You can look at little pictures. Now's not the time to do it, but you can look at little pictures of um, the temple in Jerusalem. And you'll see, like on the very outskirts, this little railing. It's almost kind of like a railing. It's a short little wall, latticed wall. And uh, that is kind of a line of demarcation to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. This is all the further you, you can come. This is as close as you can get to the temple itself, is in this particular court. And there's, there's beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is where uh, this operation is set up. And there were thousands upon thousands of animal sacrificed during a typical Passover. So the amount of livestock that would be in this court would be astounding. And furthermore, the money changers. The, uh, there was a temple tax that was due. And the temple only would only take uh, Tyrian coin, uh, currency. Uh, scholars tell us that the Tyrian coins, the coins of Tyre, if you will, were uh, contained a little higher of a silver content. So you had to have Tyrian currency. Uh, you're probably not getting, I mean, if, where are you going to find Tyrian currency here in Chester? You're not going to find any. So you have to go to the temple and you're going to have to take your dollar bills or whatever, and you're going to have to exchange them to get the Tyrian currency so that you can pay your temple tax. Now, that's the point of the, uh, of the money changers. Uh, here in this text. Now, in verse 15, notice what Jesus does. He makes a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, again, uh, I would. Do, do you think that just any normal human being, any normal man, could walk in the midst of all of this and pull this off? Like, in terms of contemporary, to try to get, to try to have like some type of contemporary resemblance, when I read this, I think of the fair, like Hookstown Fair, where I grew up, you could see Hookstown Fair. You could see the Ferris wheel and stuff from my house when I was a kid. And I think of the fair. I mean, when you go to the fair, you have all these people running around everywhere. You have all this money being exchanged. And uh, if you want, there's there's always an area where the 4-H club is set up. And what do they have down there? They've got animals everywhere. You used to like to go down and see all the animals. Well, that's great at the fair. Imagine if they were all in here right now. And you heard all of the change going jing, 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 jing. And you heard all the commotion. And you heard uh, all of the commotion of the animals. Not to mention the smell. It'd be pretty tough to worship, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty tough to worship. And here Jesus, I think what happens is Jesus temporarily removes the veil of his sovereignty, his authority and his power, and he single-handedly drives everyone out of there. I mean, he cleans house, and he does it in such a way that it doesn't cause a big enough disruption that the Roman guard, who is set up in the garrison of Antonio, right down the road they're set up why are they set up there because there's all these people coming in uh, to Jerusalem what are they doing they're policing the place if a riot takes place you can you can be rest assured that within minutes the Roman army is going to be down upon you and that riot's going to be put down right quick like but Jesus doesn't doesn't alarm the Roman guard you know many ascribe this actually as miraculous how does he do it I think he temporarily unveils I mean when he says, get out, I think, I, I think everybody said, okay, we're out of here. So he could have cleansed that temple anytime he wanted, as many times as he wanted. Because he is God in the flesh. In verse 16, he charges them. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Instead of a house of worship, they've turned the temple into a house of trade. And what, what, is, what is behind this? What is causing Jesus to so suddenly act this way? It's irreverence. It's the irreverence that they're showing. Now, we could point to, uh, to uh, unscrupulous business practices, which is often, you know, this would be the time when we would go into that. And that probably was going on. Alfred Edersheim. Has anybody ever heard of Alfred Edersheim? Okay, he's wrote some books that are really they're wonderful to read. He was a uh, Viennan Jew who was uh, converted by a Scottish Presbyterian, by the way, converted by a Scottish Presbyterian. How about that? And he um, he became a leading authority in the 19th century in Judaism. So, I think I'm hearing myself twice. Uh-oh, no problem. I think I was hearing an echo. Had no problem, Tina. Sorry to draw attention to you. I didn't mean to do that. Um, but I, hearing one of me is enough. <laughs> I was here to echo. Where was I at? I don't know where I was at. Eddersheim, Alfred Edersheim. Um, he has written a good bit on this. In fact, Alfred Edersheim comments on this text and comments on some of the business practices. And, of course, they were what you would expect them to be. Corruption was alive and well. And what's interesting, have you ever wondered where the money was going? I mean, you ever, maybe not, you know, but like I was kind of, I mean, do you ever read this and say, okay, what are they doing with all the money? Because they're collecting a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Uh, Alfred Edersheim said it was headed into the coffers of Annas, the high priest, and to Annas' family. Now, I think that's an important thing to hold on to here. Uh, and we'll get to that here in just a, a few minutes. But what Jesus, uh, is Jesus is Jesus upset about the business practices? I don't think that's, Sure. Sure, he'd be upset about that. That's corruption. That would upset him. But I think the biggest thing that's behind his uh, actions is the irreverence for his father's glory. I think that is the point that we have here. His actions, let's be be very clear. His actions are never cruel. Let's not picture this in our minds as somebody just blowing a gasket and just, just being irate. That wouldn't have been the case with Jesus. Jesus is without sin. Uh, That would not have been the case, but his wrath was real, it was powerful, and it was justified. His wrath was real, it was powerful, and it was justified. Now, we could ask ourselves, what should have been happening in that court? What should have been happening when Jesus walked into the temple? Well, what should have happened was pilgrims should have been awestruck by the presence of God. And out of being awestruck by the presence of God, their hearts should have been brought to contrition. What is contrition? Sorrow for sin. And out of sorrow for sin would ebb and flow repentance. And out of repentance, what would come? Rejoyment of the presence of God. Worship. Glory. Declarative glory. People declaring the glory of God there in the temple courts. But instead, what is happening, what instead is what is happening, is the temple is being uh, turned into a place of merchandising instead of a place of worship. And what is going on? God himself is being robbed of his glory, isn't he? They are standing in the way of the Gentiles who would want and desire to come to worship the Lord. They're standing in the way of that. And this dishonor moves Jesus to action. And look at verse 17. His disciples, they're watching everything that's happening. And the Holy Spirit brings to their mind what is written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, for us to go any further in this, I think we're going to have to look at the context. I think we need to look at the context of verse 17, which is Psalm 69. We're going to have to look at the uh, the intensity of, of what's happening. We're going to have to look at the cost of what's happening to get the full effect of this. I'll be brief on each on these things. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but keep your place in John chapter 2 and turn with me back to Psalm 69, which we read earlier in our service. And uh, it's a lengthy Psalm, 36 verses. I'm not going to go through all verses, but let, let's go through about half of them. And that'll suffice. And I'm just going to go through them really quickly. You look at verse 1. Or we look at the title. It's ascribed to David. And in verse 1, David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep myrrh. Now, this is figurative language. Uh, but we get it, don't we? He's in deep distress. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this, says, You know, you can swim in deep waters. But what do you do in the myrrh? What do you do in the myrrh? The waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep myrrh where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods, they sweep over me. I'm weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. So this has been going on for a while. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Verse four, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Now, I've never read anywhere where David was bald. So I'm assuming there was a lot of hairs on his head. So there's a lot of enemies. There's a lot of enemies here. And mightier are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. If you look down to uh, verse 7, we could ask, and before we look at verse 7, we could ask, okay, what has happened? What has happened that has brought David into such distress? Verse 7 gives us uh, not a lot of detail, but it gives us enough. David says, therefore, it is your sake. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Okay. in other words, what is what has David been doing? Obviously, he's been he's been standing for the truth of God. He's been standing for the glory of God. He's been contending for the glory of God because he says it's for your sake. It's for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me. The King James translation is helpful here because it says, for zeal for thine house has eaten me up. It has eaten me up. Now, David here is being persecuted. And he's being persecuted because of his zeal for the glory of God, isn't he? And the disciples are thinking of this psalm as they're watching Jesus. Clear the temple. Now, why is their minds being brought to Psalm 69 and verse 9? Now, there were no versification during the days of the the disciples. They're thinking of a part of Psalm 69, and I think they're thinking of the context in which that part comes from. The zeal for your house has eaten me up. I think they're thinking of the mess that David's in because of his determination, his enthusiasm, his willingness to stand and contend for the glory of God. And there Jesus is. There Jesus is, clearing this temple. Now, my guess is, is that the people, the worshipers, the pilgrims who are nearby are probably enjoying this because undoubtedly there was corruption taking place. They're coming in there. They're probably getting ripped off. They're getting ripped off with their sacrifices. They're probably paying inflated prices for the sacrifices. I understand there was an inflated cost for the currency. I understand that uh, some scholars say they even charged uh, interest on the change that they gave back, the money changers. Now, uh, imagine if you're trying to worship and Jesus comes and clears this place out. You're probably going to be happy to see that happen. But when you see things like this happen, when you see things like this happen, you, you rejoice inwardly. You're like, oh, look what he's doing. But what do you think of next? Oh, is he going to be in trouble, trouble, trouble? Oh, my, oh, boy, has he swatted a beehive. And did he swat a beehive? You bet you he swatted a beehive. See, it's not just zeal for the house that we need to hold on to here. Zeal for your house is eating me up. Already at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is becoming spent, isn't he? He's becoming spent. Now, what should we take out of this? What should we take out of this? The only thing I could write down was, oh, how he loves you and me. You know the song, don't you? Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. I offer that to you by way of application. I suppose I could have asked this morning, How does your zeal measure up to David's? That's a pretty popular question that's asked about this point in time. I could have said, Well, how does your zeal look at David? Look what David does in Psalm 69. How does your zeal, how does my zeal add up to David's zeal? We could ask that question. It's a legitimate question. But let me ask you this. When I put it that way, what comes to your mind? How does your zeal add up to David's zeal? Well, if you're like me, the first thing you're going to think of, well, not very good. I need to try harder. And that's the message, try harder. And you leave thinking, I got to try harder. But instead... Instead, I say, oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves us. And what happens to your heart when you hear that? If you have the eyes of faith and your eyes have already been brought to Jesus, you see his love. And what does that do to your heart? Oh, it makes you want to serve him, doesn't it? I would contend with you that that will make you want to serve him and cause you to be more faithful than it would ever be done if I would ask the other question. The other question is important. We need to leave here, and we need to serve. But we need, we need God's empowerment to serve. Our hearts need to be won for Him. This is called grace. We need grace. Oh, how He loves us. How He loves us. This zeal. You know, the natural person, a person who is apart from the Lord, who has never been converted by God's grace, the natural person, he or she cares about their own Glory. They're zealous and they're on about their own personal glory. But you see, this is the exact opposite. David, who is converted, what is David concerned about? He's he's willing to sacrifice his honor and his glory for God's honor and God's glory. His heart has to be transformed. It's the only way that can happen. And how does that happen? How does that happen? You know... I'd point you to verse... We're still in Psalm 69. I'd point you to verse 16. Verse 16. You know, I was meditating on this psalm and in preparation to preach on John 2, I spent, I think, maybe more time in Psalm 69 than John 2 because... You know, the first thing I want to say, what am I going to center on? What are we going to, how long of a text are we going to take? And I kept going to verse 17 and zeal, you know, and the zeal, and the context of this zeal is Psalm 69. And, okay, I want to get a fresh handle on Psalm 69. And I get to verse 16 there, if you look at it. And it reads in the ESV, it says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. Your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Well, in the King James translation, steadfast love is um, translated. In fact, I think I have the King James here in my notes. I think I put it down here. Yeah, listen to this. In the King James translation, it says, Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Now, neither translation is wrong, but I found the word loving kindness really moved me. Maybe more so than steadfast love. Like mentally, I know what steadfast love means. But loving kindness, what a word. What a word. And as you know, I'm fond of quoting Spurgeon because... I'm very fond of Spurgeon's ministry. Spurgeon writes, It has furnished sad souls much good cheer to take to pieces that grand old Saxon word, which is here used in our version, loving kindness. That grand old Saxon word. Who could put it like that? I couldn't begin to do that. That's why I quote him. Its composition is of two most sweet and fragrant things fitted to inspire strength into the fainting and make desolate hearts sing for joy. If we go back, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. We're not going to have any proper zeal for God's glory until we have tasted God's loving kindness. Have you tasted his loving kindness? Are you enjoying his loving kindness? Because we couldn't come to church for decades and believe about his loving kindness and believe that he's loving lovingly kind. But are you experiencing that loving kindness? Has he dispatched it to you? Is it yours? Someone will you say, well, you know what? Maybe it's just all mental. Maybe it's just a concept in my mind, but no, maybe I've never tasted of it. How could I? How could I taste that? How could I taste that? Well, let's go back to our text, because our text our text teaches us how we could taste it. You go back to our text, what is Jesus doing? Well, I think I see him making a whip in verse 15. What's he doing? He's driving them all out of the temple. Why is he drawing them out of the temple? Because we're going to arrive. We're on the plane. And we're going to fly into the temple. And where are we going to worship with all this commotion going on? Where, where You see, we have to worship the way God tells us to worship. That's what Donald was talking about on Wednesday, wasn't it? We call it the regulative principle. We don't just make this up. We don't just do what we want on Sunday mornings. God tells us how he wants to be worshiped. And in this dispensation, in this administration, God... As God has dictated that if, if we were to go to Israel and we were to fly in to Israel and we were going to worship at the temple, we would have to worship where all these animals are. And Jesus would have that. So he's clearing the place. So that when we make that long pilgrimage in, we can be in his presence. And being in his presence, we can get a renewed sense of our sin. And in getting a renewed sense of our sinfulness, we can repent of that sinfulness and find forgiveness. And in finding forgiveness, we can enjoy the presence of God. Jesus opens the way. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a precursor to John 14. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth... And the life. Oh, he's going to do much greater than clear a few animals. This is really magnificent. I mean, to have been there, to have been there and watched him clear everybody out of there. I mean, I think if any one of us would have went in and tried to do that, we would have been apprehended and shown the door quick like. He cleared that place, he made a way. But the way that he would make by virtue of his crucifixion and his resurrection. And his ascension is a much glorious and more glorious way. And that's the way that we've come to him this morning. And if it weren't for that way, we wouldn't even be able to have a service like we're having this morning. To be able to enter into the presence of God. Oh, how he loves you and me. I have a couple of quotes. I don't know if you guys have had enough or you want to hear a couple of quotes. I'll let you guys you guys decide. How many want to hear some more? How many want to call it a day? How many don't want to vote at all? <laughs> it's okay. I never want to listen. I never want to leave you. I don't want to be the. I don't want to be the host that doesn't prepare enough food. <laughs> you know, like you eat and there's no more, and people leave hungry. But I also don't want to. You know. But a couple of quotes uh, here. I'll, I'll share. I'll share two with you. Um. This first one comes from uh, an old preacher named named Thomas Brooks. And um, he writes here, um, Suffering times are a Christian's harvest times. Suffering times are a Christian's harvest times. I wanted to bring this in because these are strange times. Um, The church is being persecuted in the United States in many ways. And I think that is really where we're headed. Suffering times are Christian harvest times. Let me instance in that grace of zeal. I remember Moulin speaking of the French Protestants. Seth, quote, when papists hurt us for reading the scriptures, we burn with zeal to be reading of them. But now persecution is over. Our Bibles are like old almanacs. Did you got that? When persecution came, they hungered and thirsted to read the Bibles. When persecution was over, the Bibles became like all almanacs. Who digs out their favorite almanac and catches up? You know, after the years over, the almanac goes where? He continues. All the reproaches, frowns, threatenings, oppositions, and persecutions that a Christian meets with in a way of holiness do but raise his zeal and courage to a greater height. It's like the opposite you'd think would happen. Isn't it? Michael, scoffing at David, did but inflame and raise his zeal. If this be to be vile, I will be more vile. 2 Samuel 6, 20 to 22. You can look that up this afternoon. Look, as fire in the winter burns, the hotter... Because of the coldness of the air, so in the winter of affliction and persecution, that divine fire, the zeal of a Christian burns so much the hotter and flames forth so much the more vehemently and strongly. He says, in times of greatest affliction and persecution for holiness sake, a Christian hath first, first, a good captain. First thing we have is a good captain. That's Christ, right? We have a good captain to lead and encourage us. Secondly, we have a righteous cause to prompt and embolden us. There's many people that would give their lives for a righteous cause just for that alone. But we have the most righteous of causes, don't we? To embolden us and to prompt us. Thirdly, a gracious God to relieve and succor him. Succor is an old word, uh, means support, if you will, uh, to support him. Fourthly, a glorious heaven to receive and reward him. And certainly these things cannot but mightily raise him and inflame him under the greatest opposition and persecution. These things will keep him from fearing, fawning, fading, sinking, or flying in a stormy day. Yea, these things will make his face like the face of an adamant. An adamant. What is an adamant? An adamant is the hardest of stones. It is harder than flint. Yea, it is harder than the nether millstone. The naturalist observed that the hardness of the stone is unspeakable. The fire cannot burn it, nor so much as heat it through, nor the hammer cannot break it, nor the water cannot dissolve it. Therefore, the Greeks call it an adamant from its untableness. And in all storms the adamant shrinks not. It shrinks not, it fears not, it changeth not its you. Let the times be what they will. The adamant is still the same. In times of persecution, a good cause, a good God, and a good conscience will make a Christian like an adamant. It will make him invincible and unchangeable. When one desired to know what kind of man Basil was, there was presented to him in a dream, such as the history, a pillar of fire with this motto, Talus est Basileus. Basil is such a one. He is all on a light fire for God. Persecutions, but set a Christian on... A light fire for God. What is all this to say? Yeah, I think we do have hard times coming. I don't think there's really... Would anybody want to argue that we don't? But these hard times, what they will do in God's hands, in our hearts, is inflame our zeal for the Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, oh, we pray that, Lord, these words, these words from John chapter 2 and these words from Psalm 69 would set our hearts aflame for you, O Lord. Set our hearts aflame and fashion gospel zeal in our hearts, Lord. Fill us, O oh Father, with the zeal for your glory. That, O oh Lord, that zeal could not be contained. That that zeal may not be silenced. That that zeal can do no other than to speak. No other than to stand. No other than to contend for the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. We dare not try to do this on our own. We dare not try to manufacture it ourselves. We understand that this is a grace that can only come from your hand, but we call on you, O Father, to fill us as a church with this zeal. Fill us with this gospel zeal. Fill us with a portion of that zeal we see that it filled Jesus and caused his indignation, his righteous anger to be unleashed in this court. O Father, that you would cause that zeal to wellspring in our hearts, that we would stand for the truth, that we would contend for the truth to our loved ones and those who are around us, that we, would, that we would strive to lead holy lives as a result of this zeal for your glory, that we would do nothing. Lord, might you even create in our hearts what old Calvin used to say, that he would rather die a thousand deaths than displease you. Oh, Father, raise up a church that could say that with sincerity and say, Oh Lord, my zeal, the zeal that you have given me, the zeal that you have filled my heart with is a zeal that would rather die a thousand deaths than displease you. Oh Father, fill us with this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Invite our singers to come back up.
1: <clears> okay. <throat> Precious in his holy sight He will hold me fast He will not let my soul be lost His promises shall last Bought by him at such a cost He will hold me fast, he will hold. and died Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied He will hold me fast Raised with Him to endless life He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last.
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you for your, your wonderful love. And, oh, Jesus, we are just awestruck by your zeal for your Father's glory. Our zeal for thine house hath consumed me, has eaten me up. Oh, Lord, we so thank you for that message that you have given us in John chapter 2. That we would see this side of your glory, this side of your person. We see that you're in no way weak. And we see that you're powerful, but you're in no way cruel. You're no tyrant. But it is out of love for the father and love for your people, love of holiness and righteousness. And desirous to see the father glorified. Oh, Lord, how wonderful is that? Oh, Father, fill our hearts with these things, Father. Fill our hearts as we go forth from this place. Fill our hearts with this holy zeal. Zeal for the things of God. Zeal for your glory. Oh, Father, we didn't touch on this much, but I think we all know that we must repent of being zealous for our own glory, for there's no room for it. So, oh, Father, quench and mortify the evil of living for our own glory, that we would be emptied of this and filled with zeal for your glory. And as we go forth from this place, O Lord, we pray that the love and the joy and the fellowship of the triune God would be upon us now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.